All right, Chris, I deleted all my email. What? You deleted all your email? Mm-hmm. Yeah. What? You're, you're not serious. Yeah, no, I deleted it all. I mean, you can always go back and find it in the deleted mail or something like that. Like, I didn't even look at them. I didn't even like, I didn't go through and say, should I keep this or not? I just deleted them all. I'm getting chills all over my body just imagining doing that. That's crazy. No backups, nothing. Just delete. Yeah, I mean, it's in my trash folder, I'm sure. Or, you know, or the whatever archive thing or something. But if it's important, they'll email you again. Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into digital tools, solutions, and strategies that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Thanks for joining us. Now, here are your hosts. Welcome to episode number 228. I'm Chris Boyer. That's Reed Smith. (laughs) Actually, did I do that last week? I may have done that one last week. You did do that last week, but it never gets old. Never gets old. Well, good thing. Good thing that is the case because I'm going through and deleting all these emails out of Chris Boyer's inbox right now. (laughs) There you go. Yeah, he won't mind. Well, here we are for another week of Touchpoint. If this is your first time joining us, uh, we certainly welcome you. Appreciate you tuning in. If you're back for another week, welcome back. Quick plug for the website, touchpoint.health. Right there, you can find out more about this episode you're listening to, the show you're listening to, or other episode shows and show hosts that are on the network. You may be saying, I didn't realize there was a network. There is. Uh, there is close to 20 shows now on the network, mm-hmm. all with different show hosts, different topics, focus, all that kind of fun stuff. I'd encourage you to maybe pick a show, dive in, give them a little bit of uh, support. Certainly rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to be listening or streaming. That's still uh, one of, if not the best way that people organically find the show. And then certainly word of mouth is much appreciated. So while you're at the website, you'll notice something called the TPS report. So weekly email comes out every Monday morning, has five articles to start your week. Those articles are curated by the show host that you see there on the website. So sign up for that. We promise we won't spam you. We're going to pause here, get a quick word, and then we will be back with today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors. Sure is. And Reed, consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you.
Today, Reed, we're going to be talking about user experience design and patient experience design. Two things that are not new topics to us. We've we've mentioned some of these before, haven't we? You know, I'm going to guess we have because we're 228 episodes in. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think uh, consumer experience was one of the very first shows we ever did between episode one and 10, somewhere in there. I don't remember the number. But yeah, we've talked about this in in a variety of different fashions over the uh, last four years. Whenever that comes up, though, in conversation, I think a lot of people, they're not really sure what it is. I thought it might be fun today, Reed, for you and I to kind of drill down and just kind of outline some essential parts of what a good user experience design is, and then even talk about how that can intersect with patient experience. And then we have a great interview later on in the show that we'll toss to from uh, Steve Koch from Cast and Hugh, who's a user experience design firm. So it sounds like a fun episode ahead, don't you think? It really is. And I went back and looked. It's episode five, which was called Voice of the Customer. So not exactly the same, but I was close. So yeah, we've touched on around and directly on this topic a number of different times through the years as far back as episode five. So let's let's jump in. I think this is going to be this is going to be really great. So we'll start with this first article here from netsolutions.com, five essential elements of great user experience design. So that seems very relevant. <laughs> it does. And trust me, there are thousands, millions of articles about user experience design and what that all means. And there's many different listicles that are out there. This one actually kind of mm. summed up our thinking in a very clear, concise way. So we thought this was a good one that we can reference. It all kind of hinges around, first of all, the familiar adage, do not base your product on what customers say they want, base oh, it on what they actually want. This is the Henry Ford car horse. He didn't actually really even say this quote, right? Yeah, I think it's more related to Steve Jobs, but yes, it's very similar. They're all kind of all tied together. Good UX design decisions should be purely based on customer actions, not about how it feels, but actually how it works. And a very big name in the space, Jacob Nielsen, has a quote about this. If you don't know Jacob, it's J-A-K-O-B. But uh, really interesting, a lot of thought leadership around this as as an aside. So uh, go check him out. He has said, don't base the solution on what customers, quote unquote, say they want. You must watch what people actually do when using your design. This is why things like heat maps are so interesting on websites, for example, because you see like where people's eyes are, where they're clicking, where the mouse is kind of moving around the page. And back to the Steve Jobs thing and even the introduction of the, uh, well, a lot of their products, the iPod, uh, the iPhone, et cetera, iPad. Like, I don't know that anybody knew that's what they wanted. They'd never seen it before. So how, how are you going to you know, verbalize that? The article uh, highlights there's five essential elements about them. Let's dive into them. First one they talk in the article about is a well-organized information architecture. So if you think about what information architecture even is, they say here the method of organizing and labeling website software, et cetera, to ensure their usability and findability to help users effectively locate the information and complete tasks. How do people know where things are based on how it's labeled and structured? Information architecture is often used with just like a particular 
thing like a website. But in my mind, when I think about experience design that can maybe involve multiple different channels, you want to think about that across not just the website, but if they go from one thing to another thing Mm. to ensure that it's all organized, you need to build that structure that connects content with functionality of what they're trying to accomplish. And they talk about really four pieces as far as the information architecture goes. So what, you know, what's best practice around that? So there's the organizing structure. So it needs to be well-defined, much like what we've kind of been talking about. Uh, Website labeling. So this pertains to the art of, you know, presenting information as as simple as possible, you know, clean. And this is where we thought we've had episodes, obviously, here on taxonomy and some schema here recently. Easy to go navigation. So the ease of browsing and finding the intended information. Uh, And then search. Uh, Search is obviously a big piece, right? How do they seek and find information? A really big piece, particularly when your search doesn't work. You know, when you think about information architecture, of those four components, there's also three elements that are really designed to create the best user experience design. The elements are not those things that that you just mentioned, Reed, but they're actually things like the user. You have to understand who your target audience is, what they're looking for. Overall, you've got to understand your users. And the second thing is the context narrowing down the information and its relevance to that target audience, making sure that the message you're sending out to that audience is loud and concise and clear. And then lastly is content, clearly. Content in this case could be text, could be images, could be video, icons, could be a variety of different, it could be a a workflow through an appointment scheduling, for example. But if you have users, context, and content together, those are the three elements that help to create that best user experience, seeing them overlay with one another. So second one on the list, first one, obviously, information architecture. Second one, interaction-oriented design. This really focuses on, uh, you know, the user's behavior. So like, what are they doing? The actions And so there's certainly all kinds of components to this, the look, the feel, the sound, you know, all all kinds of things around the design of what they're interacting with. Four dimensions that kind of go through this. The first is words. Every design should include some kind of words to help guide you through. But specifically, we're talking about like linkages or words on buttons and things like that. These are very important and you should spend time understanding how people will interact with those words. The second is that visual presentation using the images and icons that depict the intent of the words that go with them. And I think part of that is just don't use red on a hospital website. People don't like the color red on a hospital website. Unless it's your brand colors. Yeah, but it, it reminds people of blood. So no, just no. don't do it. <laughs> or maybe do it because you'll be the only one. <laughs> just going to take a counter argument there. The other two, first one, designing for touch points. Um, so think about this, you know, like you mentioned earlier, across different platforms. So whether they're using an app, the, you know, the desktop website, a tablet, mobile experience, whatever it may be you know, the design should adapt to the needs uh, of, you know, regardless of what device or where they are, you know, trying to trying to interact with you. And then finally, the fourth piece, uh, response. So this defines how quickly a user's action gets acknowledged. They say, for instance, if a user is clicking on a specific button, the intended result should reflect uh, without any delay. So, you know, you're going to the next page or a drop down list or, you know, whatever, whatever it may be. 
Or it says, thank you for successfully completing the form. My my pet peeve is when you don't have that and you don't know if it actually submitted. So those are yeah. important things. Yeah, so you submit the same thing like seven times. Exactly, exactly. Okay, the third element of these, these five essential elements is usability-aligned design. And when we talk about this, it's really focusing on three areas, how effective the solution is, how much satisfaction the user gets from doing that, and how efficient it is. Usability as an, as part of a user experience really enables users to effectively attain their objective without confusing them in any way. So in order to do that, they recommend here the KISS principle, right? Which is paint your face with makeup and play rock music, right? Yep, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, a well-designed platform makes sure that a user can easily understand your website and can interact with it on the very first time they get there. So don't make it hard for them to learn where to go to get information. Look at your usability aligned design to support that. I mean, the idea, you know, we saw this a lot during uh, or just kind of coming out of the pandemic where restaurants didn't have menus. They just had you scan the code, you know, Mm -hmm. and it would pull it Mm -hmm. up on your phone, which is great. Totally fine. You know, a good experience these days because phones, cameras can recognize QR codes or whatever, you know. So that's all fine and good. The problem I have is when you do that and you click on it and it's just pulling up a PDF document. Mm. So it's tiny. Mm-hmm. And you're like trying to zoom in. It doesn't really fit on your screen right. That's just not very good. It's not a very good experience. You're talking about the satisfaction piece, for example. It would have been better to have built that as a web page versus just uploading a PDF document where the it was scanned and the font's hard to read, you know, and all that kind of stuff. So, so number four on the list, visually appealing design. It seems logical, right? And, and I think this is probably where a lot of people go to first or only maybe, maybe not first, mm-hmm. but only, uh, but Ooh. it's really that visual design. You know, people want to see what it's going to look like. You know, people like the idea of colors and stuff like that. And that's all fine, but you know, you can't you can't only do number four on the list. But certainly this is the layouts, the spacing, the images, the fonts, the videos, the graphics, the colors, you know, all, all that kind of fun stuff. So this is like this is the like the creative step that everybody loves, right? Absolutely. A big thing here they say is in this day and age, don't overcrowd your design. Don't put too much information. Don't try to serve too much. A flatter design holds more power to convert, particularly, uh, as they call it, over an eye-pinching visual element, like you described that PDF, Yeah. right? You're not eye-pinching. You're actually kind of unpinching with your fingers now, I guess, right? Isn't that what you do on your phone? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, You're (laughs) de-pinching. Yeah, I mean, the idea, and this is why landing pages, you know, we always would recommend, like, let's strip the navigation off. Let's get rid of all the other, you know. Because you're really just wanting them to do the one thing. And so don't confuse or distract people with a whole bunch of other stuff. So the fifth most important element, read is the planned user research. In this article, it refers to three types of metrics for user research that you can consider when ramping up the user experience design. If you're looking at the type of research being descriptive, your focus is like describe a situation or a set of events, then how do you do it? You do it through observation. That's how you're, you're doing that research. If you're looking at relational, how things relate to one another between multiple variables, you may want to do that by observing and doing field studies. And then experimental it's really identifying, you know, causes of the, what it could look like. You could do that through a controlled experience. 
But the whole point here about this planned user research is to get the results back to you. And so a big thing they outline here are the two types of ways of measuring your UX design success, both quantitatively and qualitatively. And I always have to check myself when I say those two words, because quantitatively means obviously looking at the numbers that you can collect, the quantity of stuff, click-through rates, conversion tracking, etc. Qualitative is doing that field testing, testing it through user research, watching how what people do. Those things together combined can get you all different types of ways to uh, have your research benefit your project. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. In this 12-part series, as recorded live at the Healthcare Internet Conference, we'll hear from industry experts such as Paul Madsen of the Cleveland Clinic, Kathy Smith of Roper St. Francis Healthcare, David Feinberg from Mount Sinai Health System, Rose Glenn from Michigan Medicine, and many others. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media. So that's, you know, it's a, a great article and there's a lot more information in there, certainly. And this isn't the only thing, you know, you should think of as you think about experience design. And so we'll we'll come back after the break and talk a little bit about some of those design principles, uh, especially as it relates to improving patient experience. So let's uh, take a brief pause here and we'll be right back. So before the break, Reed, we were talking about, you know, those elements, those critical elements of user experience design. Now let's kind of take it and connect it to what we do in the day-to-day world, which is patient experience. And we found another article from a user experience design firm that's called Four Ways to Improve Patient Experience with UX Design Principles. Now, before we jump in, I want to say one thing about this. Oftentimes, I find that when you're trying to create examples of good user experience design, people tend to go to an app, right? We're going to create an app that has a great user experience design. This article does this in spades. It always refers back to an app or an app platform. I think that's the easy way out, I have to be honest with you. Because as you and I both know, apps are not necessarily the first thing consumers will go to. When you're talking about user experience design, and particularly in regards to patient experience design, even though the examples we're going to give may have some app-related stuff to it, don't think of this as an app. That should be actually, you shouldn't think about the form. You should be thinking about what you're actually trying to accomplish before thinking about the form. Especially on the acquisition side or new patients, or quite honestly, you know, this is that that whole concept of, you know, how we think people are going to engage with us and the idea that people are going to download a hospital's app, for example, and that's going to be how they engage us is, is probably not super realistic. Could be. I mean, there there are parts, certainly. So anyway, there's four there's four pieces of this article. They talk about um you know, really how, you know, UX can really fuel and deliver that better patient experience. So to your point, you know, try to make this, uh, you know, kind of take this as it's, as it's written, certainly, but, but think about it more broadly. So anyway, anyway, we'll jump in. The first one, elasticity. Uh, so this reverse to how elastic or flexible the hospital's communication is. So they say, for, for example, customers during registration are asked for unnecessary information. 
And so this obviously creates delays or duplicative efforts, you know, those kind of things. So instead, a quick online registration process is preferable. Another pain point, they say, is having to go uh, to multiple places for information. So, you know, streamline your design. So to incorporate, you know, the experiences all in one, you know, one package, if you will. Yeah, like an app. No, I'm just kidding, right? I mean, yes. you can see how that's people think of that, right? But we, you want to streamline, you want to make the whatever that action is that much more easier. And I know that they actually indicate that you're often asked for unnecessary information. I would argue that the person asking for that information feels it's very important because they need to put it into the patient right. portal record or whatever, right? right? I think that the healthy balance is finding out how much you can ask and how much maybe the system can know about you and prefill in. Let's talk about the second principle here, which is ease. How the hospital helps the patient save time. Imagine that. We're trying to actually help the patient save time. Research shows that the more touch points someone has to go through a patient, the greater their dissatisfaction. That makes sense to me. So how can you ease their experience? Uh, Again, they say here's an example is creating appointment time slots instead of exact times. Now, that's an interesting thought. Like, say, your appointment is going to be between 2 p.m. and 2.30 p.m. They say here that research indicates that a failure to comply with exact times causes patients to become anxious. I'm wondering how you can actually manage that when you're trying to manage a physician's schedule. But it's interesting, a flexible time slot is something that they're recommending. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, I think somewhat that may, you know, it's like, you know, an estimated time of arrival, you know, kind of a deal, right? That's what they do. And in a lot of scenarios, that's what you, you are told, whether that's an airline flight or, you know, whatever it may be. So that, that may, that's interesting. That may be an interesting, you know, pathway to go down. I think still you're probably booking actual times on the back end. Like, I, I don't know how you get around that, but what you're publicly telling, you know, maybe a little bit different. So empathy uh, is the third on the list. So they say that good user experience or UX is about increasing empathy. I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way. That's kind of interesting. So again, they're back to the app scenario here, but it says an app can um, you know, collapse a patient's complex pregnancy journey, for example, into an accessible milestones on a timeline. Yeah. Okay. I mean, maybe, maybe an app is a good scenario here. I remember when I first took a job at a hospital, there were no apps um, because there were no smartphones, but we had like brochures that we mailed people every month and it corresponded with the month of pregnancy that they were in, you know, and so you could read and it's like, oh, it's the size of a lemon and you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is a good scenario. You know, they also talk about the idea of giving access, you know, to a community of like-minded or people that are in the same scenarios. You, if you're, you know, a first-time parent, or maybe you're having multiples, or you know, whatever it is, you know, sticking with the pregnancy theme here, that's a good way to increase empathy. I think empathy is an important piece here, and and they address two things: access to other people, so you're among people that are like you. That makes a lot of sense when we talk about these online communities. And managing an online community is a whole another thing; it can be really challenging. I also think about you know people that are going through complex care, like cancer patients. If you could provide them just a general sense of of like what their care pathway will be, or even offer them a patient navigator that they could talk to on a regular basis and ask questions, 
and help them schedule appointments, that's another way where you could actually lean into the empathy a little bit more. That becomes very important. And I think access is probably part of that as well, right? So the telehealth virtual care opportunities, we're back to some apps here potentially, but, but all that kind of feeds in that empathy piece. So that's good. Okay, so the fourth one and final one is uh, efficiency. Any kind of technology, any kind of principles you could do around design, uh, anywhere you could streamline processes and remove inefficiencies is very, very important. It increases productivity. It brings down costs. That's an added bonus to you. But again, then they go to, then you just develop an app with a one-stop shop for everything. Well, you know, you can't (laughs) quite do that. It's not that simple. But, you know, any kind of simple, effective communication around different types of care pathways, perhaps, different ways that you could make it easier for the person, maybe give them the ability to fill out forms before they show up in the doctor's office for the first time. That's an efficiency thing you can address. Or like if they know you pre-fill in information about you on a form, all of that stuff becomes much more... uh, important for that user experience design. So, you know, all of this collides together into a really great user experience and patient experience design. Now, after the break, we're going to go to an interview that I did recently with Steve Koch from Cast and Hume. And we did talk about not only the intersection of customer experience and patient experience, but he also touched on a little bit about employee experience and how that plays into this whole factor. And he He even brought up this very controversial point that he has that says journey mapping, which is a very important thing around customer experience, may not be the right tool to use when you're mapping out a good customer experience solution. So let's go to that interview after the break, and then we'll be back to close out the show. Welcome back to the Ask the Experts segment of the podcast. And today I am delighted to bring back a good friend to the show. Uh, You haven't been on for quite a while, Steve. Welcome back. Yes, I think it's been almost exactly a year, give or take. But yeah, great to be here. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm excited to dig into this topic today because you are the invariable expert that I turn to (laughs) whenever we talk about experience and experience design in healthcare. My mind goes right to you and to your company. And, you know, some people may not know about you and your company. Do you mind, before we get started, sharing a little bit about your background? My background is from the the marketing side. So I, I was in advertising and marketing for many years across industries, but did a lot of work in healthcare and was really just attracted to the work in, in healthcare, especially with hospitals and health systems. And, and the work that is done to care for those, uh, you know, in our communities that are often at their most vulnerable. And, you know, my work over time transitioned in from advertising, what I used to say is, you know, making the promises that I wasn't sure were being kept into experience design, which is designing experiences and then identifying uh, what is happening and, and how the, the consumers are really uh, experiencing the, the journeys and, and how that's rolling up to the promises we're making through marketing. So kind of full circle, different parts of it, but got into that space and we started Cast in Hue about six years ago. So at Cast in Hue, our role is to really help our clients design experiences that really meet and, and exceed the expectations and needs that their customers and patients have in the future. And so we do that through journey mapping and understanding today's journey. We do that through uh, jobs to be done, 
uh, the jobs to be done framework and and understanding the needs and motivations and decision-making drivers of people through design thinking and design sprints to co-create new experiences with those our clients serve and then developing experience strategies to set up exactly how we're going to design these new experiences. And so it's, it's great work. I love it. I would say about 50 or 60% of our work is in, is in healthcare. And uh, it's something that our team is just, is just very passionate about. Well, I, I'm excited for that and for that, that background, because quite frankly, even after all this time, Steve, when we've been talking about experience and, and what it means to, you know, do experience design, I think that term and that concept is used a lot, but not quite understood correctly. And maybe it's because of the misapplication of what we're defining as experience design. What's your perspective on that? That's an interesting point, Chris. I think I think there's a lot of different ways to look at experience design. And it's, you know, the approach that we all use helps differentiate it from others. So I think our core belief at Cast and Hue, and, and a lot of people share this, is from this human-centered design perspective. And so this idea of co-designing the experiences with those who will experience it, whether it's your patients, whether it's employees, whether it's customers, making sure that they have a voice at the table. Because I think what we find is that no matter how much we think we're experts in the room, speaking of leaders of organizations and things of that nature, um, it's very difficult to know exactly what is happening without just talking to the people experiencing it. And even beyond, you know, surveys and things of that nature, they give you a good direction. But, you know, from, from my perspective, if you're designing experiences based on copying a competitor or what you think might be best because of your one visit or something a friend told you, which all those scenarios do happen. Um, you're not getting the key information you need to really design something that will be impactful to your organization. And, and I think the best way to get there is through the people you serve. The trick is how to do that effectively, right? right. But I want to I drill in a little bit on, on the fact you, you kind of alluded to different types of uh, experiences that you, you help health systems with. Um, and you mentioned uh, patient experience, customer experience, and then also employee experience. So let's let's spend some time talking about each and every one of those in turn, and maybe try to understand that a little bit. Let's start first with customer experience. I think that is a concept that's kind of flowing into healthcare from outside the industry, but it's unique in the healthcare space. Yeah, well, you know, and it's been something, like you said, it's been a conversation in healthcare that, you know, comes up quite often in terms of the debate are people customers or patients and and things of that nature. And, uh, you know, my my view is that there, there's certainly some uh, overlap, but I think of the customer experience as when a person is looking at their healthcare, making choices, making decisions about uh, maybe physicians to go to, locations to go to, trying to understand things like cost ahead of time, those are consumer type behavior. And so I see people as customers at that time. And then, you know, when they're getting that care, we start thinking about that patient experience and and all of the key elements that go with that. And, you know, whether it's their interactions with nurses, some of the other elements of the, the hospital or doctor's office experience, making appointments and, and, you know, things of that nature. That might be a place where it kind of crosses over that, that access point where we're understanding how to work through the referral system, understanding how to navigate things. But 
I do think it's important to consider the different hats that people wear uh, and and design the appropriate experiences around that. I, you know, Rick Evans from New York Presbyterian, he he once said something that he's doing great writing around the experience and, and Becker's lately and, and, you know, talks a lot and, and he's such a smart person. And he said that by providing patients choice and, and making them consumers or letting them be consumers, we're providing them dignity. It, it enhances, you know, consumerism, he said, enhances the patient's dignity because they get a say in their care and, and we should, you know, really embrace that. So that that's the way I look at it. I borrow from Rick and, and, uh, and think of it that way. Yeah. And you have a great podcast on this too. And we'll link to your podcast in the show notes. So people listening in, you get, there's a deeper dive here, but that actually, when I listened to it, I was thinking about that because it's interesting how we're kind of equating consumerism and the, the consumeristic behaviors of, you know, those people in the, in the course of healthcare uh, is, is actually imbuing empower or empowering those people with making those choices. I think that that's really where the great, you know, intersection is of consumerism and healthcare. It's really with the fact that now you have sort of an empowered or an e-patient, uh, if to borrow a term from someone from way back when, a good friend of the show, e-patient Dave, came up with like 10 years ago. Oh, yeah. But the empower patient is sort of like now the consumer patient. Well, and I think we're still in this period of transition in terms of many people may not think of themselves as healthcare consumers. Um, because they they weren't for a long time um, there and there, there's still a lot of people that that may be in that more paternalistic relationship with their physicians but I think it's changing over time um, and I remember yeah e patient Dave like I, dating ourselves I mean that might be 15 years ago when when I when he came into to uh, you know my understanding and I really learned a lot from from following him on Twitter and and, and so I think you know one way to think about it too is that, Healthcare organizations, hospital and health systems, they have an opportunity to help the patients empower themselves. And I think patients are going to appreciate that more. People will appreciate that more. And, you know, I think we could see that as an opportunity as opposed to something we have to react to. There's an opportunity to be proactive about it. And how can we design experiences that allow people to have that empowerment and feel more control? That's certainly something that is always a theme whether we're talking to uh, people going through a, you know, a clinic experience or an ED experience or an inpatient experience, they're looking for control because so often when you have a health challenge, you feel out of control. And so I think that relates to that, that empowerment and, and is a true opportunity for, for us in healthcare to look at in terms of how we can continue that transition because it's probably slower than we thought all, we all thought it would go, but it is continuously moving in that direction. Yeah, and it's interesting, then you approach the experience design differently, depending on if it's a consumer or a patient, or dare I say, a patient consumer, like kind of a hybrid model, right. because I do believe that, that the individual that goes to their care setting can vacillate between all of those different uh, modalities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, and you, you think of someone that is on a journey that may be associated with a chronic condition. It may be associated with a, you know, an, a serious diagnosis and they have to see multiple uh, care teams. They have to make multiple appointments and yet yeah, they're constantly 
changing from from being a consumer to a patient and back and forth and it's it's something we have to be very cognizant of as we design experiences because i think it's important especially the way that um, healthcare organizations are structured these days um, we need to be thinking about how we can provide the right tools the right experiences for them that are relevant to that situation and understanding when that might change and when they like we said earlier um, you know cross over each other overlap each other so it's definitely different and something that we that has evolved quite a bit in the last five or ten years and talking about evolving over the last five or ten years or even over the last 16 months right if we think about it the customer and the patient and the patient customer, what, however we want to define that, that human, right? That's right. the care pathway or care journey. They have changed considerably too along the way. And that makes it incredibly challenging for organizations because the tools that they use in their toolkit around experience design can some, sometimes be limiting. I mean, look at where we're at today. We're at this point where we're getting closer and closer, especially here in the United States, to turning a corner and in this pandemic and, and getting back to quote unquote normal life, but it's not going to be normal. This this post-pandemic experience will be anything but normal. And and I think I was thinking about it the other day, you know, everything's going to change. How we dine, you know, getting food delivered and and as opposed to going out, some of that's going to remain the same. So many habits are going to change. But I was thinking about the fact that you know, one of the top examples everybody brings up is virtual care, something we're all familiar with that that basically everybody stood up virtual care in a matter of, you know, weeks, mostly days. And that's going to be something that we're going to see permanent change from. That's, you know, the challenge there is that, um, you know, some of the tools that we use around experience design, like journey mapping, they're only going to do half the job in this situation. Because if we look at the journeys that maybe our, our consumers or patients took through virtual care a year ago when we had just stood it up. That gives us some information, but that, you know, it certainly wasn't a finished product. So it's not going to give us all the insights we need. A pre-pandemic experience when only 10% or so of the population was even uh, experiencing virtual care um, will give us some insights, but not everything. And so we really need to be looking forward in designing experiences based on the evolved needs of people uh, that, their needs that exist today, which have probably continuously evolved over the last 16 months. I think all of our, uh, it's like 16 months going on 16 years. If Sometimes I think about a year ago and I think about how our lives have changed and our perspectives have changed. They've just moved quickly. So when we're thinking about experience design, it, especially moving forward, it's a combination of, yes, let's look at the past, but then also let's really understand um, whether it's through interviews or 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 other ways of of engaging with our patients and consumers, let's really understand what their needs are and how they've changed, and so we can make sure that we're designing experiences that are that are meeting and exceeding those needs moving forward. There is this this concept or this tool, I guess, that you call jobs to be done, right. which is something that I, I read on one of your your blog posts. It was actually featured on one of our TPS five. Um, episodes many, many, many weeks ago when it was published. Tell us a little bit about that, right? What is what is jobs to be done theory? Or- it's this idea that, you know, whenever we're engaging with a product or service, we're hiring it to get something done for, it, for us. So that's where this term jobs to be done comes from. And what we hire depends on what our needs are at that time and, and, and how 
whatever we're hiring might meet those needs. So an example, you know, one example that I like to share um, is Snickers. People think about Snickers as a candy bar, right? Well, Snickers did some research. They used jobs to be done. And what they found is that the job people hired Snickers for wasn't for a sweet treat, which you might you know, think about as a candy bar in the candy aisle at the grocery store, but is actually most often um, hired to, you know, satiate hunger. It's that snack at like 2 p.m. when it's it's too early for dinner. Um, I had an early lunch, but I just need something to get me through the next couple of hours. And that insight around that job to be done, that need that people had changed how Snickers their entire product strategy, they increased the size of the of the bar to make it more food-like. Um, and that's where the you know, that campaign that we're all familiar with, hungry, grab a Snickers, you're not yourself when you're hungry. That's where that came from was that insight. Because if you think about it, Snickers is a candy bar, chocolate, caramel, all these great things, right? That we that we that we associate with sweet treats, perhaps. They never mention that in their ads. They don't talk about taste or anything. All they talk about is hunger because that's the need that they've recognized they can satisfy. So Jobs to be done uncovers those types of needs. When you recognize what the key needs are that you're satisfying or that you have the opportunity to satisfy, you may have a whole new set of competitors. Because go back to Snickers, all of a sudden they recognize they're not competing with Nestle Crunch in Milky Way. They're competing with Cliff Bars, a bag of chips, a handful of nuts. You know, those are the that's their competitive set. So we like to use jobs to be done because it uncovers those latent needs, you know, functional needs, emotional needs social needs, these, you know, what are people trying to accomplish associated with what we're doing, maybe in this case, healthcare, and then we can start recognizing where we fit within their, their need base, what's motivating them, what's, what criteria are they using to make purchase decisions or decisions to engage with a certain doctor, physician, or health system, or what have you. And so that really helps us then design experiences around those needs. So we like to say, let's take the combination of jobs to be done, plus the insights of these past journeys. And we take all of those insights together. We have, you know, what we need to really create great experiences. Of course, we continuously co-create with the consumers, with the people experiencing it themselves. That's a key part of our human-centered design approach. But I think when you have those types of insights, then you know where to focus and you can start co-creating new experiences that are really going to meet the needs of the consumer in 2022, not what may have met their needs in 2019 or 2000 uh, or in 2020. Right. Absolutely. And I could see the application of that concept into many aspects of healthcare, uh, how we uh, develop marketing solutions, for example, for the new customer, right? Or, or even how we do service design when we think about, you know, our service lines. I, I know that a lot of organizations are kind of rethinking the role of telehealth and virtual health and remote patient monitoring in their care design. What are you seeing when, when you're working with organizations now in healthcare? How, how do you see uh, an effective application of jobs to be done? You know, a couple of examples. I think, you know, one thing with virtual care is, as it's evolving now, is what are the needs that people really want to satisfy through virtual care? And where do they see it most relevant? And so, you know, something we've seen are a real preference to use it because they recognize the benefits of it in terms of saving time. I don't have to wait in the waiting room. I can wait at my house or at my desk and, until um, I can I can see the the care the care team. But in there's certain situations that they do want to be in person. And so how can we better understand 
those areas so that we can make sure we're we're optimizing that virtual experience for the most appropriate settings you know follow-ups very often or or elements that that don't require a, a physical checkup and it, it you know goes beyond that I think uh, you know another area where we where we've um, done some work recently is around urgent care and how is the urgent care experience evolving and, and urgent care is really ex- interesting to me because it's it is so commoditized um, it's there's there's some regional brands there's a ton of independent providers. And we know the health systems are starting to get more and more involved slowly but surely. We're even seeing some of the, uh, that the United Healthcare's and the payers get involved in that. So it's a very, you know, fragmented system. And, but it's, it's also something that can be a commodity, but there's also opportunities to really differentiate. And so, you know, when you understand the needs of people that might help gain uh, differentiation and, and gain preference within within your urgent care. So for instance, you know, one thing we've seen is that there's always a, a final nudge, not always, but often a final nudge to get people to get that care, that first step towards urgent care. And so, you know, for instance, how can messaging, going back to marketing, how can marketing help get to some of those emotional needs about getting peace of mind, about helping people um, think about the benefits of just that final nudge to make that appointment and things like that. And as opposed to, and these are functional needs, but you know, most, much of the messaging, if you do a Google search on urgent care near me right now, it's uh, all insurance is accepted, open these hours, you know, perhaps check in online. It's all functional, but there's an opportunity to really, talk about the emotional needs that you satisfy because there's nothing more emotional than thinking, you know, you may be sick or thinking you may have a physical injury, a sprained knee or what have you. And that there's ways you can really think about how can I, how can I enhance my marketing messaging by certainly providing that functional information, but appealing to the emotional needs of, of those I'm serving. It's really fascinating for me to think about it that way. And it just as you're describing these use cases, I'm, in, in my own mind, I'm thinking, wow, this is something that uh, oftentimes when we start down this path of experience design and looking at customer journey mapping, you could overlook some of these critical things because we have a tendency to try to, you know, put everything into a box, right? To try to make things a little bit more easier. So I do want to pivot just a little bit because there's one other thing that I want to I want to make sure we address. We mentioned at the beginning of this interview employee experience. So tell us a little bit about how you see, you know, the the employee experience intersecting with customer experience and patient experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, we've seen over time more and more research about the fact that, you know, oftentimes you can correlate and engaged employees with a better patient or customer experience. You know, there was even um, a great article back in 2019 in, in the Harvard Business Review uh, that was called Why Every Company Needs a Chief Experience Officer. And the whole point of the article was that every company should have a chief experience officer that oversees both customer and employee experience because they're so related. They, they drive each other. And I think where we're at now is that the pandemic has highlighted that even more, not just because of the needs that that were uncovered through all the changes brought by the pandemic, but now we're in this position where we're seeing labor shortages uh, across industry and certainly in healthcare in a lot of spaces. And we're recognizing 
the importance of the employee experience just to provide a consistent experience and the way it relates to the patient experience directly. And so, you know, what we try to focus on when we're looking at um, whether it's customer experience or patient experience, we want to make employee experience part of this because there's, we're often going to find there's an opportunity there to, if we can improve the employee experience, we will naturally improve the patient and customer experience. You know, we think of it like if we only focus on one part of the system, we're limiting our potential to improve the overall experience. So when you have the two areas, the employee and customer experience, you know how they impact each other, where needs might overlap, then we can, you know, really move our problem solving into systems thinking and innovate, you know, a number of different ways because we're seeing how, Improving this experience for employees will impact the patient experience and vice versa. I think that's definitely key, especially in this um, environment today where we're in a competitive labor market. Um, we've got changing experiences across healthcare. Um, we have to really be thinking if we're designing experiences, we have to look at it from a, in a, a holistic lens and really understand how every element of the experience is impacting the other elements of it. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. And it kind of harkens back to the very early days of me when I was in healthcare and, and kind of showing up at some of these patient experience meetings uh, that were you know completely operational. They, they, they were looking at me like, why is this marketing person showing up at these meetings, right? But a lot of it was focused on how do we create a physical environment for patients in the care setting, right? And they were looking at, um, you know, making sure to greet them with a smile, help them, et cetera. And I've seen those types of meetings evolve now to becoming more focused on the actual uh, the actual employees themselves to ensure that their experiences is fulfilling, so that they can present themselves in a good way from a physical experience. Now, when I think about the system level thinking of experience in general and experience design, it suddenly all makes sense to me as we describe it. Right, it all comes together because all of these things together play a role in creating those delightful expressions or delightful experiences that are, that we want our customers to have. It's challenge. It's a challenge though, because it, it makes sense, but it sure is about breaking down silos. You know, I think that's one thing that uh, is, is really key to this area is that, you know, marketing operations experience and HR you know, all need to be talking to each other. And I think that's going to be key. As you mentioned, I we have a podcast that cast in Hugh. And so I'm going to mention it again. We had Bill Stakos on, who, who most recently was with Freddie Mac. He just joined Medallia. It, but he, and, and he has a podcast <laughs> called Be Customer Led. So if you like podcasts, you're getting all sorts of great tips today. But <laughs> but one thing Bill said is, is, is that any experience officer... The, the minute they get a new job, or if they haven't done this when they have their current job, is they need to make an appointment with the chief HR officer and the CFO. The CFO, you know, to, to understand the role experience plays in the organization financially, which we all know is very important. But then the HR to make sure that they're, he's engaging with that in, employee or they're engaging with that employee and, and patient slash customer experience. And and I think that's really important, but it's it's harder and harder, not harder and harder to do, but it has been hard to do. I think we're going to see a change, but it's it, you have to be deliberate about it because it's it doesn't come naturally. Yeah, well, it's it's a hard thing to do, 
but it's the right thing. To do. Right, exactly. This is the hardest thing to do, but it's the one that has probably the most impact and the most reward. And it's also great to know that there are organizations such as yours, Cast and Hugh, to help organizations that are kind of going down this path and guide that way. So, you know, it would be remiss of me not to uh, allow you to share with people how they could get further this conversation with you um, and find out more about you and maybe even connect with you online. Always happy to connect and you can learn more about us at castandhugh.com and on there uh, we have our podcast which is called Designing Next, very much focused on experience design. And anybody could feel free to reach out to me at skoch at castandhugh.com or hello at castandhugh.com and happy just to have a conversation where we, you know, we just like to be a resource and, and uh, you know, help out where we can uh, as everybody is on this pathway towards designing the experiences that are going to be most relevant for those they serve in the future. Well, Steve, I'm going to link all, to, all of that in the show notes so people can follow along and click on through. Also go get over to your blog, to your podcast, and some of the other resources we mentioned in this interview. Steve, it's always a delight to have you on. I really appreciate you sharing your insights, and you kind of opened my mind to a lot of things today. I really appreciate that. Well, thanks, Chris. That's great to hear. And I, you know, I just enjoy any time I get a chance to chat with you because I learned so much from you. So uh, a great day, to, great day to talk. And special thanks to Steve for coming on the show. Uh, certainly always great to talk to experts like we say each week, but I think this is an interesting uh, and very specific topic that is um, becoming more and more important and really appreciate his insights around, uh, you know, one little call out there um, around employees. Um, you know, we've heard about this in, in the patient experience world for some time. You know, if you have, uh, a retained workforce that's happy, they're going to provide better care, you're going to get better experience to the patients, et cetera. So that's you know a great reminder, a great call out there. So anyway, really appreciate Steve for uh, his time and, and coming on the show. A couple of call-outs before we get to recommendations. There uh, are some industry conferences coming up. If you'd like to know more about those, sign up for the TPS report over at touchpoint.health. That's the website, touchpoint.health. Sign up for the TPS report. Yes, I said it has five articles to start your week. Also has some quick links down at the bottom of that email to just uh, industry education and conferences, webinars, things like that that may be coming down the pipe. So a great way to just uh, uh, have a reminder there of what's uh, what's available to you. Um, well, let's do some recommendations and we will call it, call it a day. Reed, I will start first. Maybe a couple of months ago, I recommended... Uh, a USB camera that I'm using that kind of replaced my uh, camera that's just built into my Mac. Um, I was using it because it's a very high definition, really great 4K camera, etc. And it had a built-in ring light around it. Now imagine something that's maybe about the size of a hockey puck, maybe a little bit smaller than a hockey puck, has a camera in the center and around it a little tiny ring light. That worked great, but what I found is I do so many web calls that that little ring light around it was just not enough. And so I actually decided I had to get, get into and actually get a bigger light. So now you've probably seen all these influences that are out there that have these huge ring lights that are kind of like these big, broad circles, et cetera. So I, I was doing my research and sure enough, those are the ones that are out there. And there's quite a few of them that are out there. Uh, you know, the kind where you actually could clip your camera right in the middle of it, right? So you can kind of do yep. your TikTok dance, et cetera. Well, I decided I was going to get one of those. And I found the, the UB size 
10-inch selfie ring light. And get this, it has a 50-inch extendable tripod stand and a phone holder in the middle of it. Yes, it's a ring light for influencers. That's what I got here. So, but here's the thing. I don't, well, I don't use it that way though, right? So I'm using it on my desktop. So what I did is I took this little ring light and it still is on the tripod. I think that's handy to have the tripod, but I have the tripod at the slowest setting. I have it standing up behind my monitor and it shines the light around it. I love this ring light. You have four different light modes, so you can get different types of, you know, some with red shading, some yellow shading, softer light, that sort of thing. And I'm telling you, it's great. And it only costs $35. It's really, really handy. And now all my video calls, be it a Zoom or a Teams call or a Citrix web call or whatever it is, name the video platform that you have, I'm very well lit. And it makes me look really pretty on the camera. And I don't need to turn on that ugly overhead light in my in my spare office here to get that light and added bonus on the weekends i can really let lit up my uh tiktok account with all the dances i'm doing that's my recommendation very nice very nice yeah it's uh you know it's interesting things that you know we now use slash need that really weren't a thing before you know nobody we didn't think anything about buying you know, lights for cameras and, you know, that, that kind of stuff. But here we are. Um, I am going to recommend a, so well, so I got a new phone. I got, I got a new iPhone. Uh, it was about time. And so upgraded and upgraded my wife's phone. She was wanting something with a little bit nicer camera in it. And uh, so anyway, so of course that then means I need a new case. And so, you know, it just kind of snowballs. And, um, so bought an Apple case. Uh, this has the MagSafe thing on it, you know, so it's like a case where the stuff like, uh, magnets to the back of it. If, if mm-hmm. anybody has seen these and I decided, you know what, I'm going to try this and just see how I like it. And I've been using it for a little while now and I really do like it, but it's the iPhone leather wallet. Um, and so it's, a uh, it's just like a little credit card sleeve basically, um, and, and everybody's seen these cases, you know, these cases that have the, um, uh, you know, the credit card sleeve on the back of the case, right? Well, I just, I didn't want one of those cause I don't really want my wallet on my phone at all times. I didn't think, you know, but I wasn't real sure. Well, this is kind of the best of both worlds. It just magnets onto the back of the case. So if I, um, I'm just taking my phone and, you know, we're going down to the neighbor's house or something like that. I can leave my wallet at home. Or, you know, if I'm getting out uh, somewhere, I can leave my wallet in the car and still take my phone with me, you know, and that kind of thing. But, you know, I, it just magnets to the back. And so I always have it with me. It's one less thing I have to carry now, uh, like a wallet, you know, whatever. So, uh, but again, it's, it's, you know, it's good for about three cards. It's not going to hold a ton of stuff. Uh, but it is, it's kind of neat. Uh, so yeah, it's the, uh, iPhone leather wallet. You let me know how that goes. I see people having, have had some of those before. I've always kind of shied away because I thought, boy, if I accidentally lose, leave my phone somewhere, I don't want to leave my credit cards with it. But then again, I've never really left my phone somewhere. Yeah. Knock on wood so far so good. But, um, anyway, so yeah, yeah, I'm liking it so far. I'm liking it so far. Awesome. Well, there you have it. Another week of Touchpoint. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for uh, telling a friend. Rate, review, subscribe wherever you happen to listen. Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. 
This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.